Before we read God's word, let's ask for his blessing of it to our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we pray that what we would see in it are its great truths and what it has to teach us, that you are indeed the Son of God and that we are your adopted children, as well that you are indeed the Lord of all and we are your subjects purchased by your blood. We pray that we would see it and that this would be dear to our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before reading from Ephesians, I want to just explain so we understand what's going on here, why, why I selected this text. In this text, verse 5 will especially apply to question and answer 33 on Jesus, the Son, and our sonship, because we are in him as adopted sons. Verse 7 will especially correspond to question and answer 34, how we've been redeemed through Jesus' blood. And we see as well in verse 10 that the Lordship of Christ is a consequence of God's plan to unite all things in him. So as we read through it, of, of particular importance to the Catechism and its lesson, and what we'll be talking about tonight is verse 5, verse 7, and verse 10. Ephesians 1, beginning verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Thus ends our reading of God's word, and now we turn to a summary of God's word and what it teaches in Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism. In its explanation, as we are going through the Apostles' Creed and the names of Christ, we come to this question, why is he called God's only begotten Son when we also are God's children? The answer, because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace for the sake of Christ. 34. Why do you call him our Lord? Because not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, he has delivered and purchased us, body and soul, from sin and from the tyranny of the devil to be his very own. As we do continue through the Catechism's explanations of the names and titles of Christ, we see and have been seeing their importance their importance of what they reveal about our faith, their importance of what they reveal about our Savior himself. As you wish to understand who our Savior is, you have to answer that question, well, what were his titles, what were his names, and why was he given these names? Each of them reveal a various aspect of him, who he was, his ministry, his work. In fact, our very destiny in heaven or in hell is based upon the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth and who is he to you? To understand just who he was and, and what do you believe about him and, and how do you know him? You see, though people may, name, may know the name Jesus, 
Do they know him as Savior? Do, though people may understand that Christ means Messiah and means prophet, priest, and king in the anointed offices of what the Messiah was, they might understand all that, but is he their prophet, their priest, their king? See, the names proclaim a lot. In answer to that question, who is Jesus of Nazareth, some might say he was just Mary and Joseph's son. He was just a carpenter. He was just a teacher. He was just a moral man. Well, rather than then steering away from those type of questions, our confession answers them, proclaims Jesus to be the eternal, only begotten Son of God and our Lord. That is what we confess in the Apostles' Creed and what we mean when we call him the Son of God. But you see what the Catechism does here as well. It's always linking us to Christ. And you you might say, well, why? Where am I getting that from this Lord's Day? Well, it isn't just interested to explain that, that he's the only begotten Son of God and what exactly that means for Jesus. Or that he's the Lord and what that means, that Jesus is Lord for him and his reign. You see, it's always asking the question, really, but what does that mean to you? Really, the, the theme of the Catechism itself is Lord's Day 1, our only comfort is in Jesus Christ. And, and everything is serving that purpose. And so here we can even see that knowing the names of Christ is presented in such a way to explain what they mean, but as well as to link it into such truths that give to us comfort, that give to us a knowledge of who he is, but that truth affects us. And what we see here is that because of our union with Christ, we can almost take what's true of Christ and ask, well, that, how does that affect us? Because we're so, and we could say this, inextricably linked to Christ. You So we're so joined, you can't pull it apart. It's like a chain link. We've been joined, we're united to him. And, and then we would then say, everything that's true about Jesus then affects us. You can almost be like, I don't know, giddy children who, who understand this and want to say, wait a second, wait, if, if Jesus is the Son of God, well, what does that mean that now we're united to him? What does that mean for us that we're joined to him? If Jesus is Lord, what does that mean about us? That's how Scripture presents that union we have with him, that we are so identified with him, not to be confused with him, but we are so identified with him that even his names and his titles have truths for us. And the Catechism gets at that here in its explanation. These names give to us then a a comfort And our comfort is our union with Christ. And and because we are joined with the Son of God, we then become sons of God. And because we are purchased by his blood, we are his own. He's our Lord. We can't be taken from him. And in this way, each of his names then gives to us truths that we need to hold dear and truths that we have to fight against attack. All of his names are attacked in various ways. All of them are misunderstood. We've gone through him. Jesus, meaning Savior, is denied by all of unbelievers. He's not the Savior, according to them. And and to them, maybe he was just a teacher. He's not a Savior. Christ and Messiah, that's denied by Jews, certainly. They would say he wasn't the Messiah. They, they, They never converted. They are still awaiting something, though they can't await a man to come. That that has passed them by, and so they reinterpret it. And Christ isn't the Messiah. They deny that. Muslims would do the same as well. He might be a great teacher, a great prophet, but he's not the greatest one. We talked about that last time. 
But then we come to these two names as the Catechism deals with it, only begotten Son. What do we have to avoid? How does this become attacked? Well, this is denied by those who want to diminish Jesus' deity. And so they redefine what it means. They would redefine what Son of God means, and Jesus is then a mere creature, or he's less than the Father. He's Son in a diminished sense. That's what they might say. So there's an attack on on Jesus, the only begotten Son, to to diminish it. And then there's others who attack it in, in a desire to elevate humanity, to elevate it in such a way as to confuse. And we've been very careful when we say we're joined to Christ, we're united to Christ, we're not confused with Christ. And there are those who would so elevate what we might become in glory or through what God might do in us as to make us gods ourselves. And the Catechism is clear here. There is a distinction between natural sons and adopted sons. And we cannot elevate us or humanity to such a level where we lose that distinction. And so in understanding what does it mean that we confess he's the only begotten Son of God, we protect ourselves from error and Lord. What about Lord? Well, clearly that's denied by those who don't believe in him, that don't hold him as Lord, but it's also denied by those who, who say something like this, you can have Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. There are those who want that. They reject the Lordship of Christ and say that Jesus did come to cleanse you, perhaps, but he, he, he's not a Lord that needs to be followed. He doesn't reign over your life. Is that true? Can there be such a thing as lordless Christians? We have to defend against that, and that's what the Catechism does. That's what we ourselves do. And so here's the point of saying all of this. Why are we going through the names? Why are we going through the titles? Because it's educational. It teaches us. It teaches us about Christ. We go through the names because it gives us an evangelistic purpose. It helps us to explain him and, and to present him in the gospel. And we go through the names of Christ for our own sanctification. We go through the names of Christ for our own sanctification because each of these names and titles become more dear to your life as you draw nearer to him. And as you probe into the depths of what does it mean that Christ is my Savior? What does it mean that that he's my Lord? What does it mean that he's the only son, the only begotten son of God, and that we are adopted children on account of him? As, as we grow in our faith, those truths have so much more depth. And so go, growing through the names of Christ gives us that richness to our faith. When we look at what it means that he's the only begotten son, as we have in our catechism, question and answer 33, it's this only begotten son. This is what we confess, and it phrases that question in regards to who we are. So we confess that he's the only begotten son, but then it says, but we also are children of God. So what does that mean? You know, earlier in Lord's Day 9, we learned that we are children of God. It had called us that, but that begs the question, what kind of children are we in relation to God and in the fact that Christ is the Son of God and we're sons of God, but what does that mean? That phrase, only begotten Son of God, is a phrase that defends the deity of Christ. How does it defend the deity of Christ? Well, we confess that that the Son of God is eternally begotten of the Father. And he's the only Son who's eternally begotten. And that isn't to diminish it. Sometimes we can hear that term, begotten, or eternal generation, and sort of think, now, isn't that saying Jesus is less than 
Is he less than the Father? But in, in confessing Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, what you're actually doing is defending against heresies that would have said he was a creature. That there was a time when Jesus was not. And what this is saying is that the Father has always eternally begotten the Son. There was never a time when the Son was not. And what it means as well is the idea that he possesses the exact same being, the same nature as the Father. Even in the Jewish mindset, the idea of a son wasn't one of a diminishment. It was a one of continuation of the family, a continuation of the father. In fact, the two could have been at times almost, almost confused, as it were, because the son carried on the father. He was almost an extension of the father as what it was seen. And we can use an analogy in the same way. You can look at your own children and your own children and think of that in light of your own nature. Do your children possess a, a diminishment of the human nature, a diminishment of who you are? Well, no, they, they don't. They are the continuation. Now, that is very fraught with issues if you were trying to apply it one for one to the Trinity in Christ. There was no time when Christ was not, but you, you see the point there. The eternal generation, eternal begetting of the Son, is one that extols his divinity, one that doesn't diminish it. He is the only begotten Son of God. And this, and understanding that truth, helps us against the one error we already talked about, those who seek to elevate humanity to that point, to say that we can in some way become gods ourselves. You see, Mormons would believe that. Some other corrupt versions of quote-unquote Christianity would believe in what's called deification. That if you reach a certain level, if you are if accomplished enough, you've done enough, or you reach that point of glory, you will be sons of God. You'll be divine. You'll be God. But that's not the case. As the Catechism is clear, he is the only begotten Son of God. And you see that when the Catechism makes this distinction. He's the only natural Son of God. He's that only one who is the very, very continuation, and not to blur the two persons, but of the being that he is of the Father. And the sons that we are, our adoption, doesn't put us on that level. Nor do we ever become like the Son in that way. We never could. There are those who, who argue you will even receive the attributes of God yourself if you are like this, if you can keep this. But that's not the case. It's because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We may be immortal. We may never know death. But we had a beginning. Jesus did not. The Son of God did not. He's the only begotten we are made like God. We share in the rule of Christ. We become holy like God. In our glorified state, we become very much like him, but always in a way that is bearing image, always in a diminished sense, never in its full extension. And even in glory, you can think, we will have a perfect representation of many of the God's attributes. And I say that as a representation of his attributes. One of God's attributes is he's eternal, eternally wise. Another one is eternal good. In glory, we will be perfectly wise and perfectly good, meaning there won't be a, a problem with our wisdom. There won't be a diminishment in, in that we have a, a corrupted version of it. But we will never be eternally wise or eternally good. 
We are not the natural son. We are the adopted children of God. You see, Christ is that only natural son. Hebrews 1, 3 explains this as it sets apart the sonship of Christ. Verse 3, Hebrews 1, 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Our adoption, though, is by grace for the sake of Christ, through the work of Christ and in union with Christ, but we don't become Christ. And that's how we avoid many of those errors. We are so united to him, though, that we shouldn't diminish just what our adoption is. You know, we, we, we can't be natural sons. God is God. He's the Trinity. And it's not as if the Father made a decision to generate the Son. This is how the Trinity, how our God exists eternally. But that doesn't diminish what he's brought to us. That we are truly part of And using that adopted children analogy, we are part of the family of God, truly. We truly belong. We're truly his sons. 1 John 3, 2 says, We shall be like Jesus because we shall see him as he is. It's amazing. In us, we see a profound mystery. We see in creation form the ability to to image God himself. God in us has presented to what his created world is as his image bearers. And this becomes all that much greater in glory. This becomes all that much more clear when we are the adopted children of God for the sake of Christ and in and through Christ. We are able to be those representatives all the more. It means that we will be in the purest way humanly possible, the fullest revelation of the glory and nature of God, though we will not be God. It's an amazing truth what we've inherited, and that's that idea that the Catechism is bringing in there. Because Christ alone is the eternal natural Son of God, we, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace for the sake of Christ. And we saw that from our passage in Ephesians, when you look at verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This was his plan to make us his children, to make us his sons. Man was created to be his representatives, his vice regents on this earth, and that is exactly what we are. We are the sons of God. And, and adoption is the highest truth, the greatest joy of theology. It's not just that we're justified. It's that we're justified and that we're sanctified, and especially that we're adopted. It contains it, but the idea is that we've been reconciled with God and are his sons to be part of his family. So this is what it means when we confess only begotten son. It means something about Jesus, but it also means something about us when we confess that truth. And then question answer 34, why do you call him our Lord? What does it mean that Jesus is our Lord? The Catechism puts it that we have been purchased in body and soul from sin, from the tyranny of the devil, to be his very own. To confess Jesus is to affirm then that he possesses us. And that's the best idea of slave imagery. What do I mean by that? I mean, there's a lot of negatives associated with slavery and for obvious reasons, but this is using the idea of purchasing, that we've been purchased 
And the joy here is that we've been taken from the one master of enslavement to sin, and we've been purchased by the best master of all kind, of all time, the purest, the most loving. Jesus is our Lord. He's bought us. He purchased us. And he's done so in many ways. And this is what one commentator says about that. Christ can claim lordship over our lives for four reasons. By right of creation, he made us. By right of redemption, he saved us. By reason of preservation, he keeps us. And with respect to ordination and appointment, God has exalted Christ and placed all things in subjection under his feet. Christ's rule is not some arbitrary rule. What he's done is not some arbitrary work. He has purchased and bought us and done so in many ways. He's claimed the right to be Lord over his people. To declare Jesus as Lord has implications. It means we then obey. It means we serve only him. And we're also comforted. How does the catechism phrase it? All these things, not with gold or silver. He didn't purchase us with that. But with his precious blood, he has delivered and purchased us body and soul from sin and from the tyranny of the devil to be his very own. Comfort. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? He owns us. And that's comforting. What do we do with our prized possessions? Some of us, and I'm, I'm including myself there, we value things so much on this earth that we're, we're willing to just protect it at all costs, what we value. I heard a story, I might get some of these details wrong, but I, I heard the story of, a, of someone in the neighborhood who had, had, not in my neighborhood, but a neighborhood who had put in this stamped concrete driveway, this, this driveway that was, a lot of work had gone into it and was apparently quite beautiful, and, and this man had gone into quite a lot of lengths to protect it. He, he, he was so enamored with this driveway and the desire not to mess it up in, in our winters, so what he would do is he'd cover it in the winter. And he would put tarps on it, but the tarps would blow away, and so you'd cover that with wood, and then he'd put things on the wood, and he wouldn't drive on it because he wouldn't want the salt from his car to, to come onto the, the driveway, and he, he wouldn't want it eroded. And, and, and you, you hear this, and you think, that's ridiculous. The point of a driveway is to drive on it. It's to park on it. Well, what's the point of this analogy? You see what great lengths we go to to protect what's special to us, what, what we've purchased, what we value. For some of us, it's, it's cars. For some of us, it's collections. For some of us, it's just money. The list is endless. So that's a negative side of it that I'm using to illustrate the positive. Look what Christ did to gain us. How do you value worth? Well, that's how much someone's willing to pay, right? But it's not with silver or gold that he purchased us. He purchased us which, with what is the most precious substance there can be, his blood. Divine blood. And that's not a commentary for us to think, yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty good. We feel pretty good about ourselves that's a commentary on the heart of the one who would pay that for us. To be his very own. And so there's that negative idea of, of 
guarding your precious driveway. But, but the positive is that it's, it's that attention, it's that concern, it's that love to be his very own, his prized and precious possessions. That he paid all for us, delivered us, purchased us, body and soul from sin, from the tyranny of the devil, to be his very own. He's our Lord. Now, I say that first to address this. How do you answer those who want Jesus as their Savior, but not as their Lord? What a poor view and version of Christianity do you have? You see, what they're really wanting is to sort of to, to buck off the yoke, they would say, of, of, his, of slavery to Christ. That he's our master, he's purchased us, and we own him, and we are obliged to obey him. That's, that's what they want to buck off. And, and we, the, or the true church, would respond, why would you ever seek to throw off the yoke of Christ? When his yoke is a burden that is precious and light, what he tells us. When it means he's placed that stamp of approval on us or love on us. In fact, there is in the Old Testament that idea of the beauty of slavery when a slave would not leave his master and would be taken to the, the doorpost of the house and have the all pushed through his ear so he would know and that everyone would know he belonged to his master for all time. Why would you ever want to throw that away? To be under Christ, to bear his mark, and to call him your Lord, to know his protection. You see, it makes some sense to our sinful natures to make Christ and to want him just to be a soap, our soap and towel. We can get into the shower, we can lather up with our soap, we can wash and cleanse us of our sins, we can dry off, we can leave the soap in the shower, hang up the towel, and that's the Savior we want. We can just leave him there, is what these would say. No. He's our Lord. And to be Lord means we follow him, and we obey him, and we'd have it no other way, because enslavement to the world is enslavement to our desires. We see where that gets us. Being freed is to be free to serve Christ, to be free to follow him. Freedom to keep his law, which we read every week, and in its perfection, and its beauty, and it gives what is right and true, and that's what we're called to do. That's what we know as Jesus as our Lord. What do we think Romans eight, fifteen through 17 means? It talks about sonship. It says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then it adds this line, Provided we suffer with him in order that we, also, we may also be glorified with him. You, you see, being under the lordship of Christ means we, we're going to suffer with and for him. It's that, that provision. But you see that we're heirs with him and we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Those who want to throw off the, the Christ as their Lord are exchanging perhaps what sufferings they may avoid on this earth to lose the glory of heaven. What a poor exchange. There's no such things as lordless Christians. But then we have to ask, do our lives resemble 
a faithful servant, a faithful slave. To be a faithful servant, a faithful slave, means we are proud to wear his colors. It means we obey him and are at every step of the way ready to serve him. We're also ready at any step of the way to give him honor and at every step of the way to rise up in defense of those who would dishonor our Lord because we bear his colors, we bear his coat of arms. He's our liege Lord and we follow him and him alone. Is, is Jesus Lord of your life? Is Jesus Lord of your phone and your computer screen? Is Jesus Lord of your thoughts? Is he Lord of your security? Is he Lord of your entertainment? Is he Lord of your worship? Is he Lord of your grief? Is he the Lord of your tongue? Earlier this week, uh, Mid-America had their spring conference, and one of the topics was substance abuse, just uh, uh, the, the, the way the world and, and even the church now has been swept up into these things. The idea of drugs, that has become an epidemic. Alcohol, that, be, that becomes this thing that just pulls you in and, and won't spit you out, as it were. It's this epidemic, but what was interesting to me is, is what the speaker said, that he sees to be an epidemic that we know and we all know about, but that's just run rampant and out of control, and that's the sin of, of pornography, of lust, and how it's so prevalent and how it's so destructive. And so you, you take all of those things and you ask yourself, is, is he Lord of my life? Or do we resemble those who want Jesus as our soap and towel? We just use him, cleanse ourselves, and then live the way we want. To our sinful man, it sounds so good. It sounds, yeah, you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. You can fulfill your desires. But brothers and sisters, I can tell you right now, that is the worst position you, should ever, you could ever be in. Because it'll just suck you in. All these sins, all these substances, all these, these things that we pursue or might pursue rather than Christ. He's our Lord, and he's purchased us to be his very own. 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You know, that verse is saying, and we can plug it into, into this Lord's Day, it wasn't silver and gold that was the price. And it wasn't even just a perfect life. It was his death. It was his blood. That was the price. That's what we've been washed with. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Glorify him and call him Lord. Obey him. John MacArthur says it well about this idea of Lord and how we must have him as Lord. We can't just have him as Savior. He's both. He says this, He is Lord. And those who refuse him as Lord cannot use him as Savior. Everyone who receives him must surrender to his authority. For to say we receive Christ when in fact we reject his right to reign over us is utter absurdity. It is a futile attempt to hold on to sin with one hand and take Jesus with the other. What kind of salvation is it if we are left in bondage to sin? That's why this is such a comforting Lord's Day. It's such a comfort 
to be able to call someone with the title of a father or mother or lord. And you know those who know that best? The orphan who's desired a family, who wasn't able to say, this is my father, this is my mother, and we can apply that same thing here as adopted children of God and as well to be able to say, this is my Lord. Orphans, lordless, no one cared about us at all. It's that idea. We weren't this precious possession. We were outcasts, unholy, sinful, at each other's throats. That's humanity at its best. And yet, our Lord came in. The only begotten Son of God came to earth and and bought us. How comforting to say that we are children of God. That is our Father, the Lord. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you, and Lord Jesus, we come before you, confessing you are truly the only begotten Son of God, the natural Son of God, and yet in union with you, we are comforted to know we're adopted children of God. We also are comforted to know you as our Lord, purchased to be your very own prized possession. We thank you, and we praise you, and we ask, Lord, that we would put to death the the things that remain in our life, that we would seek to put them away and to serve you truly and faithfully. We ask this in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ.